So last week we heard how Isaac and Rebecca prayed for 20 years for God to give them a child. And then finally God is faithful to his covenant promise and Rebecca gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, and these two boys are very different. They don't really get along. In fact, uh, we're told that they even began to jostle or fight in their mother's womb. Uh, but God has determined that Jacob is the one through whom his promise will be fulfilled. It is Jacob's line that will eventually lead to Jesus. Uh, But this certainly isn't because of Jacob's qualities. His name means he grasps the heel. Uh, Figuratively, he deceives. And this just about sums him up. Last week, we saw that he conned his brother into giving up his birthright in exchange for some lentil stew. Jacob is characterized by selfish ambition. Uh, He reminds me of Commodus, the villain from the film Gladiator. Uh, And there's that uh, scene in the film where Commodus is having a conversation with his father, uh, the Roman emperor, uh, Marcus Aurelius. And he laments the fact that he doesn't have any of the virtues that his father esteems. And he says, but I have other virtues, father. Ambition. That can be a virtue when it drives us to excel. And if you've seen the film, you know that Commodus is a total weasel. And to be honest, I think Jacob is that kind of a character. Uh, But if Jacob is ambitious in the extreme, Esau is the opposite. He's so laid back, he's horizontal. And when it comes to God's plan and his part in it, he really is quite apathetic. He seems like one of those people who, who kind of just let life happen to them. So Jacob is conniving and ambitious, and Esau is disinterested and apathetic. And neither of those dispositions are a good approach to life. But Genesis focuses much more on Jacob, uh, because he later becomes Israel, the nation into which Jesus is born. And this morning, we're going to plot some key events in Jacob's life, and we're going to see how his relationship with God develops or not, as the case may be. And in so doing, we're going to explore some of the stages uh, that people today might go through in their relationship with God. And those stages are to deny, to acknowledge, to wrestle, and to trust. To deny, to acknowledge, to wrestle, and to trust. And all of us uh, will probably go through some, if not all, of those stages at some point, though not necessarily in that order. And I don't think Jacob ever got to the point of fully trusting God. Uh, But the hope is that we will reach that point. So firstly, uh, we're going to think about what it means to deny God. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jacob denied God in the sense of him being an atheist. Atheism is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, But certainly his actions seem to show very little regard for God's sovereignty. Uh, But why do I say that Jacob was denying God? Well, we see a whole sequence of events where Jacob is up to some skullduggery. And initially, there's no reference to him relating to God in any way whatsoever. Uh, And often in Genesis, we see people reaching out to God in some way. They'll build an altar, or they'll fall face down before God, or they'll pray, or they'll do something to show that they are focused on God. But Jacob does none of these things. 
In chapter 25, he tricks his brother out of his birthright. We saw that last week. There's no reference to God. Where's God in that plan? In chapter 27, uh, Jacob and his mother literally cook up a plan to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the inheritance that should have gone to his eldest son, Esau. Again, no reference to God. Uh, Now, when that happened, Isaac was old and blind. He may have been a bit doddery, easily confused. And he uh, he's getting to the end of his life and he wants to bless his son Esau. And so he calls him in and he tells him to go out and hunt some game, some wild animal or other. Uh, and he says, prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, overhears. Remember that Isaac favoured Esau and Rebecca favoured Jacob. So while Esau is out hunting... Uh, Rebecca cooks some goat stew and she helps Jacob to disguise himself as Esau and then Esau goes in to receive, uh, sorry, then Jacob goes in to receive his father's blessing. And the only time that God is mentioned in this whole sorry affair is when Jacob actually lies to his father. Isaac uh, thinks he's speaking with Esau and he asks him how he managed to find this uh, game so quickly. And Jacob replies, the Lord your God gave me success. Jacob is lying. He knows he's lying. He's just been out back and killed a goat. And what's more, he's prepared to bring God into that lie. It's almost as if Jacob, uh, it, it seems that Jacob is denying that God has any part to play in the events that are unfolding. Almost that God can't see what it is that he's doing. And there are plenty of people who think that way. We all know people who live as if God has no bearing on their lives or on the uh, events that are unfolding in the world around them. Uh, And that is the reality of the increasingly secular culture that we inhabit. But it's our job as Christians to live very different lives to live spirit-filled and spirit-led lives in order that we might alert people to the reality of Jesus' sovereignty. The next stage we're going to look at is uh, to acknowledge God. So when Esau discovers that Jacob has stolen his blessing, as you might imagine, he is really angry. In fact, he vows to kill his brother uh, as soon as his father dies. In verse 41, he says, The days of mourning my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob gets wind of this and he flees for his life. He heads out to Paddan Aram, uh, a journey northward, so about 800 kilometers, to the house of his um, his uncle Laban. That's uh, Rebecca's brother. And he's not far into the journey when God sends him a vision as he sleeps. You may have heard about Jacob's ladder when he sees these uh, angels descending and ascending this uh, stairway or this ramp to heaven. But crucially, in this dream, God reaffirms his promise to Jacob. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So yet again, we see that God's plans are not contingent, are not dependent on our goodness. And we've seen Jacob is an unscrupulous character, and yet God promises to bless the world through his offspring. 
And often in Genesis, we see that immediate justice is subordinate to God's overall plan to bless creation. We've all heard the phrase, the phrase life is not fair. And uh, sometimes you wonder why evil people uh, often seem to sail through life and good people suffer all kinds of misfortune. We rarely see immediate justice in the world, uh, but we trust in God who is working to renew and restore creation. And we know that justice will ultimately be done. But Jacob's had this dream, and this is the first time that Jacob acknowledges God in any meaningful way. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. And he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then he makes this vow. He says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. So Jacob acknowledges God. He acknowledges God's presence. He acknowledges that God has a part to play in the events that are unfolding. But he doesn't want to submit to God, and his relationship with God is conditional. There's a big if. If God will be with me, watch over me, give me food and clothes and safety, and bring me back to my father's household, if God does all of that, well, then he can be my God. We too can put conditions on our relationship with God, sometimes without even realising it. I'll trust God so long as dot, dot, dot. Basically, I'll, I'll trust God so long as I don't experience any pain or suffering or difficulty or anguish. But that is unrealistic. None of us will have a straight, easy run through life. Pain and suffering will not be present in the new creation. But they are present now. At some point in life, we will all experience pain and anguish of some sort. And if our relationship with God is dependent on our being free of those things, well, then we'll fall away at the first sign of trouble or difficulty. And that is when we need God the most. Or we can approach it from the opposite angle. And this is more or less what Jacob did. We can say, if X happens then I'll trust God. The problem with this approach is we don't keep our side of the bargain. When X does happen, we still don't trust God. Uh, Years ago, I read a book called Bravo 2-0, which is a true but slightly embellished uh, account of a British SAS soldier who is captured behind enemy lines in the first Iraq war. And there's a point in the book uh, where he describes being sat in a squalid cell, cold and hungry, he's been badly beaten. And he cries out to God, and he basically says to God, if you get me out of here, I'll believe in you. If you get me out of here, I'll believe in you. And in his book, he actually cites this as the reason that he doesn't believe in God, because God didn't get him out of here or out of there. Uh, But I think what he means is God didn't get him out of there immediately. God didn't get him out of there according to his personal timescale because God did answer his prayer he got released he wrote a book he made a lot of money out of it God answered his prayer but he didn't keep his side of the bargain he still refused to believe in God you see we can't put conditions on our relationship with God I'll trust God so long as Uh, I'll believe in God if 
Life in this world is not going to be easy. But we must remember that we are made for a very different world, and that is coming. Maybe not as quickly as some of us might like sometimes. So Jacob acknowledges God, but he keeps him at arm's length. He acknowledges God, but he still wants to follow his own agenda. I wonder, does that ring any bells? Do any of us do that sometimes? So Jacob arrives at his uncle Laban's house, and he falls in love with his youngest daughter, Rachel. And he agrees to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. Uh, But on the wedding night, Laban sends his eldest daughter, Leah, into Jacob. Now, remember, this is pre-electricity. It must have been pretty dark uh, because Jacob doesn't realize that his wife has been switched until he wakes up next to Leah in the morning. must have been quite a shock. And the irony is that the deceiver has been deceived. Uh, But Laban says he can marry both of these sisters if he works for another seven years and he agrees to do so. So basically, uh, Jacob works for seven years for Laban. He marries Leah. And then a week later, he marries Rachel. And then he has to work for another seven years. I should mention that we need to make a distinction between description and prescription. Genesis describes lots of things that happened, uh, particularly with this rather dysfunctional family. That is, Genesis tells us things as a statement of fact. X, Y, and Z happened. That is a description. Genesis is not saying this is the way that families ought to be. It's not prescribing, it's not recommending this as normative behavior for families. So Genesis describes things without necessarily prescribing them. And I need to say that because it's about to get a whole lot worse. Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah, and their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, uh, get into what is essentially a baby-making competition with Jacob as the father. All in all, 12 sons are born, and those sons more or less give their names to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jacob stays with Laban for another six years after this. Uh, he prospers in these 20 years that he's in Laban's household. Uh, but eventually, after increasing friction over whose flocks are whose, whose sheep belong to who, Jacob takes his flocks and his possessions and his people, and he does a runner. And in this chapter, chapter 31, Jacob acknowledges God a great deal. Verse 5, he says, God has been with me. Verse 7, he says of Laban, God has not allowed him to harm me. And in verse 42, he says to Laban, because Laban has chased him down and caught him up and they have this conversation. He says, if God had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty handed. Jacob is very quick to point out that God is on his side. Uh, But it's never very obvious that Jacob is on God's side. The whole way through, he's been motivated by selfish ambition and self-preservation. And for us, I think it's easy to acknowledge God's hand on our lives when things are going well. But are we still able to do that when things are not going so well? You know, are we just seeking God's endorsement on the way that we want to live our lives? You know, okay, I seem to be blessed, then obviously what I'm doing is completely okay. There's no way that I need to change. Or are we willing to be challenged and changed? And that is a key question for Jacob 
as he approaches Canaan and prepares to meet his brother Esau. And then we have this rather strange story uh, that's often given the title, Jacob wrestles with God. And it would be easy uh, to see this figuratively in terms of the way that we fight with God, maybe the way that we resist God. And there is definitely an application in that direction. Uh, but verse 24 says this. It said, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. There's a sense in which Jacob doesn't start this fight. It's the man, it's God that comes to wrestle with Jacob. And it seems odd that God would appear in human form and wrestle with a man. And what seems even more strange is that they appear to be evenly matched. If anything, Jacob seems to have the upper hand. What is going on here? Well, I think it shows us that God is not prepared to overwhelm us. God will not subjugate us. He won't exert an increasing amount of power until we simply cave in. God will not force us to be in a relationship with him. I come from a Royal Navy family and uh, my father has a glass-bottomed beer tankard. I bought it for him. And the idea stems from the 18th century where the Royal Navy used impressment as a form of recruitment. And so the press gangs would uh, put a coin in a man's beer mug, and if he then drank that beer and the coin touched his lips, he was said to be, uh, well, he was said to have received the king's shilling and be a paid-up member of the Royal Navy. Hence, they developed these beer mugs with glass bottoms so they could see if someone had dropped a coin in their pint. Of course, if all that happened and uh, the person concerned refused to join the ship, They'd just be taken by force. Often they'd just be coshed over the head and dragged off to a new career in the Royal Navy. God doesn't use press gang type tactics. We are not tricked or forced. We must join the ship of our own accord. As one author put it, we have to want to yield to God's purpose and to God's vision for us if the change is to be authentic. But God will fight for us. And uh, God has been fighting for Jacob this whole time. In fact, throughout the narrative that we've summarized this morning, God has been fighting for Jacob in the sense of trying to win him over. It's only when Jacob is is in a physical fight that he realizes that he's in a fight. But Jacob doesn't want to yield to God. In fact, he tries to force God to bless him, which is an absurd thing to do because God wants to bless him anyway. He's already promised to do that. Eventually, Jacob walks away limping, but unchanged. He refused to submit to God. Even so, God renames him Israel, which means he struggles with God. And God blesses him anyway, because it is Jacob's family through whom God's promise is to be fulfilled. A few weeks ago, I met a man, not from this area, you won't know him. Uh, He was clearly struggling with God, or God was struggling with him. He told me how he was once thrown from his horse, uh, and he broke his leg, and he was lying in a field uh, looking up at the stars um, in immense pain, and he thought he was going to die. He cried out to God, and then help came, unexpectedly, inexplicably. He told me how he'd lost everything, his business, his wife, his kids, everything. Uh, He 
told me the remarkable fact, story of how members of his family had come to Christ, had given their lives to Jesus one by one. They'd become Christians, brothers, sisters, other members of his family. And I said to him, do you ever get the feeling that God is trying to get your attention? He was struggling with God and he knew it. And what's more, he said to me that he found the prospect of putting his trust in Jesus quite scary. Will he walk away from this encounter limping but unchanged? Or will he put his trust in Jesus? I don't know, but I'm praying for him. Maybe you could pray for him too. You see, the final stage I want to mention very briefly is trust. I don't think Jacob ever got to this stage, but uh, this is a place that God wants us to get to where we put our trust in him. But there's a big difference between acknowledging God and putting our trust in God. In the same way, there's a big difference between knowing there are such things as parachutes and that they work and jumping out of a plane with one on our backs. So let's finish by asking ourselves where we are this morning. And this is a deeply personal reflection. Am I denying Jesus? Not necessarily in the sense of being an atheist, but am I effectively denying Jesus's sovereignty by the way that I live and the decisions that I make? Am I merely acknowledging Jesus? I believe the gospel is true, but I want Jesus to fit in with my agenda. Is my relationship with Jesus conditional? Am I wrestling with Jesus? Am I getting an increasing sense that Jesus is trying to do something new in my life? And will I let him? Will I yield to him? Will I trust him? Oh, and one more thing. You might be wondering how things went between Jacob and Esau. You remember their reunion. Well, Jacob remained in fear right up until the point where Esau welcomed him with open arms, gave him a great big hug, forgave him. And once again in Genesis, we see this glimmer of hope. The flame of God's purpose will not be extinguished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can learn from the lives of these patriarchs. We can see the way uh, that you're working in people's lives and in our lives, trying to win us over, trying to bring us to a point where we trust you completely. We thank you that you are trustworthy and that we needn't follow our own agenda because you have a plan and a purpose for us that is infinitely better than anything we could devise for ourselves. And so, Father, this morning we pray that we will uh, set our sights on you and we will determine to put you first and to see you be glorified in and through our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.